Welcome to the American Reformer Podcast, hosted by Josh Abatoy and Tymon Klein. Our mission is to promote a vigorous Christian approach to the cultural challenges of our day, rooted in the rich tradition of Protestant social and political thought. All right. Hello and welcome back to the American Reformer podcast. You've got Josh Abatoy here. You've got Timon Klein. And we've got a very special guest, a cool guest today, uh, joining us uh, from uh, Battleground, Washington. We've got Chris Wiley here. Uh, Chris is the uh, teaching elder senior pastor at Westminster Church, uh, Westminster Presbyterian Church in Battleground, Washington, which is a really cool area and uh, a really great church. I've had the pleasure of visiting there. Uh, Chris is uh, an author uh, in many different publications, Touchstone Modern Reformation, uh, Imaginative Conservative, National Review, First Things. He's all over the place. He's an American reformer too. Uh, He's the author of many books, uh, most recently in the house of Tom Bombadil, which is a total hoot and you should totally read. <laughs> There's so much more I could say. Uh, Chris is a fellow alum of uh, Beirut on the Charles, uh, <laughs> a, a disreputable educational institution in a very nasty, cold place up north. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, Josh, uh, great to be with you in time, and I'm glad. Thanks for asking me to be on the show. Totally. Well, you know, often I, I was saying this before we started. Often we have a Casas uh, potty. Uh, with our with our guests, um, you're just one of the most interesting pastors in the world. So we just we we brought you on. We didn't have any sort of instigating catalyst. We just thought we have to have Chris on, and and it seemed like a great time. So thanks for coming on. And and we wanted to talk. There, there's many things we could get into, but I think what we really wanted to talk about today, and this is an area where y- your thinking and writing overlaps with um, institutional concerns that American reformer has, and it's really it's this idea of you know, the vocation of the pastor, what is the pastor called to, what kind of leadership in their church and then in their community is the pastor called to, and, and then tying that discussion into um, the broader question of, of elites in evangelicalism, um, you know, how, how is our current approach working out? How should we tweak that or adjust that in order to do a better job of, of attracting high caliber, faithful men into leadership uh, in the church. So I, I think that's sort of the basic idea of what we'd like to talk about today. But maybe, maybe to start, um, set the table, you know, you could just tell uh, us and our audience a little bit about your own background and what drew you to ministry. Oh, okay. Well, I, uh, my, my folks were Episcopalians uh, when I was born, and my mother was something of a kind of Anglo-Catholic. And uh, but it was this was the 1960s, uh, and everybody was seeking, and everybody thought what they needed was to be found in California. <laughs> and so people were kind of like, uh, you know, abandoning their given responsibilities, and, and that was true certainly for my folks. Um, so I, my, my father was uh, employed by uh, Washington University in St. Louis, uh, before that, uh, University of Buffalo. So he had, he was an academic mother was kind of artsy and I grew up in a world filled with, you know, reproductions of Michelangelo and, and other things, (laughs) 
but so that was kind of the world I was part of, kind of a bohemian um, penumbra that surrounds college campuses. My father got involved in a range of things, uh, eventually ended up in Scientology. And uh, that's a very expensive outfit to belong to if you had, know anything about it. And everything you've heard is true. It's pretty creepy. But anyway, he's, he's still uh, wrapped up in that to this day. And uh, I ended up awarded the state, uh, which was really weird in some respects because my family background is uh, kind of upper class. But anyway, I ended up as a ward of the state. And uh, it was during that time that uh, I was befriended by a preacher's kid. And we just hung out together all the time. And he had to go to church. So I went to church with him. And after time, I uh, actually believed the gospel and went into, uh, you know, college to study for the ministry. I, it's not what I wanted to do. I I had always dreamed of being a comic book artist. And so um, that was what I was really preoccupied with and completely obsessed with. But um, long story short, ended up in, uh, you know, seminary and then graduated and then got involved in a range of things. I was involved in urban ministry before it was kind of cool in the nineties, late eighties. Uh, I can remember when nobody knew about Tim Keller <laughs> and uh, I can remember, uh, you know, uh, kind of, a, a, you know, a PCA church starting in Cambridge. Uh, I think you're probably aware of the church I'm thinking about right off central square, but I was, I attended that. Square. I was a member of that church for three years. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. So, you know, those guys, but anyway, I remember when they came to town and we were just kind of like intrigued, <laughs> had no idea I'd end up in that denomination myself eventually. But anyway, so, uh, that's a little bit of the background of me. And I ended up at Harvard Divinity School, uh, actually because I was asked to come there by Harvey Cox, believe it or not. And I was in the, I was teaching philosophy for Eastern Nazarene College down on the South Shore, and they wanted me to get my PhD so I could come on full time. And so that's uh, the reason why I was there. And I didn't finish. Uh, I joined an illustrious group of dropouts, <laughs> and, but I was there for a year and a half. And uh, But it was a really valuable experience for a lot of different reasons, but one of those being I, I saw the... Um, there was nobody behind the curtain, so to speak. Uh, the wizard uh, was a fraud. <laughs> yeah. And and what you had is an opportunity to kind of see that and pass through the gauntlet and say, okay, this is your best stuff. Okay, great. Well, I can tell that you got nothing to offer. And that's what, it, you know, that was what that experience was like for me. But it was also really helpful in the sense that I was able to pursue some studies. Uh, I studied under Ralph Potter. Uh, there. And uh, he was a throwback. He was actually an old jock. Uh, he played center for Occidental <laughs> when he was in college. And uh, he got on the faculty and was uh, tenured and then just kind of decided to do his own thing, uh, largely politically incorrect stuff, which was, you know, the Western tradition. <laughs> cool. So I spent, I spent a lot of time, you know, learning about La Rochefoucauld and, you know, Schopenhauer and people like that with him. That's, that's so cool. And, you know, I mean, the, the, I love the, uh, the, the type of person who goes through that sort of institution and, uh, 
is a, is very unimpressed by it and likes to be is comfortable being sort of a dissident. I mean, those are often some of the best. <laughs> you know, best yeah, I, 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 it's been, you know, it's been it's been fun because they've tweeted about me uh, as an alum. Oh yeah, and uh, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. And uh, when I was on the Eric Metaxas show, they tweeted out, and I thought, <laughs> you guys actually listen to Eric Metaxas, and you're actually taking credit for me being on the Eric Metaxas show. That's so crazy. Uh, but they tw- they've tweeted out other stuff uh, about things that I've written about Harvard Divinity School they didn't like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, it, well, you know, so so, and when did you go? Was that, that was in the nineties, like early? 90s? Yeah, it was mid okay. mid nineties. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, so I mean, at the time that you went, I mean, you know, you could have gone to uh, Westminster, you could have gone to I mean, Southern. Uh, you know, there were a number of like pretty, you know, pretty intellectually solid um, evangelical seminaries. Um, what what drew you to go do seminary at? Um, you know, sort of a, a, a mainline, um, a more academic environment as opposed to an evangelical institution? Well, I actually did get a degree at an, an, you know, at an evangelical institution. So I'm a graduate of Nazarene Theological Seminary because I was yeah. in the Nazarene Church. Then I was also at uh, Gordon-Conwell. Mm-hmm. So I was there too. So this was my third. <laughs> and, uh, and like I said, it was mainly because, uh, I don't know if you remember Kent Hill, he was the head of the Institute of Religion and Democracy for years, but he was the president of Eastern Nazarene College when I taught there. And he was the one that was, you know, wanting me to come on faculty full time and, and uh, said, you know, in order to make that happen, I need really need you to get your PhD. And, and it was right about that time that Harvey Cox uh, asked me to tend there. Mm-hmm. So I thought, wait, why not? Yeah. Yeah. And it was right down the street. I lived in Central Square. <laughs> oh, right, right. Yeah, so you would have been there, with, I guess. Uh, was Did Rick Downs plant Christ the King? Yeah, uh, no, he didn't plant it. Okay. Uh, he, but he, was, he came in and, and uh, you know, got it in a better, um, better footing, I think. Okay, okay. Got it. Yeah, Rick Downs was the senior pastor during my, my tenure there. Um, but Yeah, I like, I like Rick. Yeah. He, we've, we've had a good friendship. Yeah. Yeah, uh, he's he was awesome, uh, and he was he was very southern, which I enjoyed uh, during my time yeah, there. Um, yeah, I remember I, him. I remember him complaining that that the church was just made up of expats from the south. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean that, that's the you know it's uh, no it very much it it, it it a big chunk of it was, um, and so okay, so that's helpful getting your background. I, I think that. Um, you know, one of the things we've—I I look out at the landscape, and and I think we've got an emerging challenge um, in a lot of different denominations. I mean, you could even go over to the Catholics. You see it with uh, declining numbers of priests, and of course, there's uh, there's some other factors at play in in their situation because you've got to be celibate and you know forego having a family, and so you know, there, there's in the Catholic case, you've got that explanation, but. But but there's similar dynamics going on. Uh, I know the Southern Baptist world well. It's happening there. Um, I suspect it's happening within the PCA and sort of faithful uh, Reformed denominations as well. Um, oh yeah, it is. It is happening in the PCA. Yeah, it's a, it's a subject of conversation. You know, I guess you're you're, you're a guy who um, you know you've done a lot of you've done a lot of very interesting things, and you you know you ended up coming over to ministry. But I mean, what? What do you make of the sort of the crisis of the of the pastorship? What, why why are fewer young men going into seminary? And then maybe I mean talk about 
you know, maybe the quality a little bit too. Like what, you know, are we attracting leaders like very high caliber men to ministry right now? Uh, yeah, those are great questions. Uh, and I don't have uh, authoritative answers. I've got my, I've got my guesses. I think with regard to the caliber of young men, I think it's something that across, you know, the board in our society, people are asking that question, where, where, where are these guys? Uh, so um, we're, we're part of a larger leadership dearth uh, or collapse of masculine leadership. And I think there are uh, things that, you know, have been going on for the last 20 years that have, I think, actually uh, been, uh, have actually served the purpose of undermining masculine characteristics because those were, were perceived as being um, impossible for other people who didn't possess them to compete with. So if you can't, if you can't, you know, the old saying, if you can't beat them, join them, uh, you can maybe alter it and say, if you can't beat them, um, use psyops on them, <laughs> kind of, mm-hmm. kind of undermine the things that, that, that characterize that group's, uh, uh, abilities or make those abilities or, or undermine those abilities in such a way that you level the playing field. And, you know, we see that in all kinds of ways with, you know, different minority groups being lionized now and, and, uh, men generally speaking, more or less either taken for granted or, or, uh, pilloried. So I think that's part of the picture, you know, public education's done that. But I also think even in the Christian world, we see that, um, and I think maybe that's this also ties in. There's a there's kind of a Christian wannabe f- dynamic that's been true my entire adult life. You know, the, the old joke is, is you know, uh, what is base? You know, what is, what is evangelicalism but just sort of popular culture with a Jesus bumper sticker on it or something? Uh, you know, like you have a Gold's Gym and God's Gym T-shirts. You know, just all this kind of mimicry. Uh, we're just as cool as you are, kind of stuff. Uh, and I even think that's true for high-end marketers like, you know, the the, the Gospel Coalition and, um, you know, Redeemer in New York City. I, did, I think that they were basically doing the, the same thing, but their target market was the Upper East Side of Manhattan. So, you know, uh, upper middle class, lower lower upper class folks. But that, that was it. I mean, they didn't really challenge it. They just wanted to be liked by it and accepted uh, the basic, I think. And I think that's all kind of falling apart. I think that uh, a lot of guys who are the caliber that we'd like to see more, uh, you know, you know, guys with cal- the caliber we'd like to see more of in the ministry, uh, they're, they're not interested in being uh, part of that any like they were for, for the longest time. So I know a lot of really good guys, really high caliber guys, but it seems like the, the, the more I like them, the less they're interested in, you know, that kind of stuff. So, you know, in denominations, denominations are, they're like 10 years behind the time all the, all the time. They're all just playing catch up all the time and getting to the, the, the crisis and uh, the PCA when it comes to young men going into ministry, they're not asking these questions of me. Basically, you know, they, they basically all they're interested in is, is us, 
uh, being cheerleaders for the institutions. So I get emails from, you know, Covenant College or Covenant Theological Seminary, and they're not, they're never asking me what's gone wrong and what can we do to change it. All they're saying, all they have to say is, you know, we really need you to send your young people here. That's about all they say. (laughs) And your question is why? (laughs) That's right. That's right. That's exactly it. I'm like, I, I I wouldn't go there. Uh, Why would I send anybody there? Yeah. Yeah. Um, No, that's interesting. Yeah. I I don't, you know, I look at it from a distance. I mean, I, I think, you know, maybe getting, starting to build towards an answer a little bit is I look at, I look at the social function of the pastor from times past relative to today. And I, I see, I see a calling that's just, that's higher. It's more, um, it's something that somebody would aspire to because it's, it's more fully fledged leadership. Um, I mean, of course we can talk about the black robe regiments during the revolutionary yeah, war. Yeah. Um, and, and the, the, why, why were they, why were they actually leading that? I mean, oftentimes they were the most well-read, uh, politically engaged, they were, they were sort of the leading citizens of their towns. And that's why, you know, that's why we had the black robe regiments because they had, um, they had the acclaim of the people in their local community behind them. And they, they were shepherding their church, but they were also looked to for sort of broader leadership. And um, I, 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 my hunch is that part of part of that's what's going on is the, the, the narrow conception of ministry has been, I think significantly, significantly narrowed. And part of that is pastors are, are very leery of, of um, they don't want to appear spiritually abusive or overbearing. Um, they, uh, they have a very sort of lead by consensus uh, model where, you know, really they're, they're kind of like glorified therapists for a group of people rather than sort of like ambitious uh, vocal uh, sort of fearless leaders out in the public square. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, John Witherspoon would probably be disciplined by the PCA, you know, uh, for his extracurricular activities, I guess. But I, uh, yeah, you know, and he, I think that's right. Um, so this kind of goes back to what, how do we conceive it, uh, you know, the church mm-hmm. and, you know, we've, drawn heavily on corporate America's management models uh, to re sort of work what we're doing. And there are certain things, of course, about that it is fine. It's good to know how to, to work in a bureaucratic environment. But um, I also think that there's a, a lack of real critical reflection on that kind of stuff. So wh- one of my mentors was an entrepreneur uh, who, uh, whose company was purchased by a Fortune 500 company. And this guy was probably the, the best bureaucracy buster I've ever seen. He, he, he knew how to get things done. Um, and I don't see that very often. Uh, I see a lot of, I guess, um, people who were just kind of cowed by bureaucracy and don't think of it as something that can be engaged with um, in a, a way that brings about the kinds of things you're looking for. Let me give you an example. So I remember my friend's name is John Bowen. He was my mentor for about a decade when I lived in Cambridge. But I remember while we were there, uh, 
we had a problem with parking tickets. You remember those, uh, Josh? Terrible. Yeah. Were you aware there were two different departments that passed out parking tickets? It's almost like there was a competition. Mm, I didn't. No. <laughs> yeah. So, there, so you have two different groups. And so our church uh, had no parking. We had about 500 people who attended our, our facility. Uh, we had like five different congregations. So none of the congregations were very large, but we had several. And they were all language-based, you know, ethnic minority congregations um, in Chinese, Korean, Haitian, et cetera. So we get parking tickets all the time. And uh, my, my friend, John, said, give them to me. I'll take care of them. It's an example of leadership. <laughs> I'll take care of them. So what, what John did is he figured out, and this is, this is a lesson I learned from John. He said, John said, there, there are two uh, structures in every institution. There's the, the flow chart, and then there's the real one. <laughs> so, so you need to figure out uh, how things really work. Don't be too impressed by the flow chart. The person at the very top may be a complete moron. What, what you got to do is you, you kind of study the situation and see how the work actually flows. And what John was able to figure out is that all of the parking tickets in the city of Cambridge went to one person's desk and they were manually entered. And John realized if I can get to know that person, parking tickets can disappear. And he did. It, was, it turned out it was, a, was an older lady. Uh, she was like maybe in her uh, early 60s. She had been there forever. Everybody depended on her and needed her. She was in the flow chart way at the bottom. But in terms of the reality, she was telling people at the very top how things were done. <laughs> you know, and so John made friends with her and we, we saw many parking tickets disappear that way. Another example of his, his uh, sort of insight, he, he, was a, he was able to bust the bureaucracy in New York City. He ended up selling uh, some airspace above the Lambs Club in Times Square for $100 million dollars. And it now has uh, been filled with the most expensive hotel in New York. But uh, that $100 million went into a foundation that funds church planting in New York City. So it, it, he, wasn't, it wasn't, he wasn't in it for himself. It wasn't entirely mercenary. He was, but, but another fun story is when he, he was able to get uh, what he wanted out of prudential insurance. Uh, he came and he told me this story one day. He said, yeah, I just got off the phone with one of those senior vice presidents of Prudential Insurance. I was able to get what I wanted. And I said, wow, how'd you do it? He said, well, I sent him a letter and, I, and on, the, on the envelope, I, I wrote, for the person who is authorized to open this, what do you think happens? No one opens it. <laughs> Everybody's passing it up the chain until it finally gets set to the desk of somebody who says, I'm authorized to open this. And he opens the letter and it's John asking for him to call him. And the guy called John laughing. He said, you got me. What do you want? And John told me at that point, he said, the thing you need to understand about bureaucracies is the primary motivator is fear. If you understand that, you can break a bureaucracy. Now, where are we learning this in seminary? Where are we learning this, you know, uh, in local churches? Uh, it doesn't happen. Um, what, what you have is a sort of a uh, sort of a wise uh, and proactive uh, approach that is not cowed by bureaucracy in the case of my friend John, but sees it just simply as a necessary you know reality. It, it is what it is. We need bureaucracies, but we need to understand how they really function, not not what they say they do. What how do they really act behave? And then study them and figure out how to break them. 
Well, that it strikes me, Chris, listening to that, the the uh, those anecdotes there. The you know what what's lacking in sort of we can just generally say Protestant leadership, but evangelical leadership. Um, you know, high we've already mentioned high caliber people, but it's people that have this sort of awareness, both structurally and culturally. Um, and then a sort of assertiveness in the same regard, right? Not We can analogize from business over to other areas. And the awareness would be, you know, that something, um, and we talk about this kind of thing all the time, that, you know, something fulfills the role um, that ideally a pastor in a community would. There's something that's that's going to be in that, in that slot. Um, what we've been told is that it doesn't exist anymore. The slot has been uh, become obsolete, but it actually is filled. Uh, but we don't. Um, so one is pastors recognizing that. But two, um, a sort of again, what we talk about a lot at American Reformer in our circles is is a self confidence that allows you to be assertive to say, you know, that's uh, I'm going to take that community leadership that belongs to me, and this is what the the pastors you know in the 18th century and New and 17th century in New England. Uh, were kind of like, right? They were both competent, um, capable people, very smart people, conscientious, all this, but at the same time, um, did have a bit of the elite sensibility that they're born to rule in a certain regard, along with, you know, the civil authorities. It's it's sort of parallel. And so it, what, um, you know, this, this has been totally lost from evangelical life. Um, maybe they're a little bit embarrassed or think it's inappropriate to say, you know, they deserve this sort of leadership or are going to take it by force and do it in a, in a capable way. Um, and they, they've totally bought into the, the sort of, in a, in a liberal order, the indifference of civic or communal life towards religion, because it doesn't, doesn't matter. It's not supposed to be a component of it. Um, so how do, I mean, I, what, what I try to think about is like, how do you dislodge that um, from evangelical pastors and then get people in there that can actually fulfill that role, um, you know, in a, in a competent or, or good way to where they would have that kind of societal leadership again. Yeah, I think in my, in the case of my, my old mentor, John, uh, it was, uh, competence and, um, audacity, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, he, one of his sayings is, uh, I may not be right, but I'm never uncertain. <laughs> and he, he, he had a way of commanding the respect of people. So uh, surprising uh, people. So this was in Cambridge, right? So um, I, one of our state represent, or yeah, one of our representatives in state government uh, really uh, respected John. And he was a Democrat, liberal, um, and but he had John uh, when he won an election come and pray for him and pray for his team. And John was the sort of guy who would just kind of walk in and just assume he was in charge most of the time. <laughs> and but he was at the same time he wasn't he wasn't obnoxious. He was very likable. I remember he had a, another f- uh, fascinating relationship with with one of the Jewish business leaders in Central Square. I don't know if you, Josh, if you remember. Um, what was the name of that furniture company in Central Square? It's Putnam Furniture. The owner of that was a guy named Carl Barron. And uh, Carl loved John uh, and, you know, had him over for dinner all the time. And and I think largely the thing that they these guys saw in John 
uh, had to do with his competence. Uh, they, 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 they knew that he understood the worlds that they were in and he could actually give them some good input and he was fun to work with. And so, um, you know, I've got more stories about, you know, his relationship with, with those guys in my own case, I've had somewhat similar, uh, experience, but a lot of it has to do with just, um, having a kind of proactive, uh, approach to things. So like when I go to a hospital, I assume that I have access to everything. So I walk around and people all, all, all assume I'm a doctor because <laughs> I just kind of walk around. I'm a pastor, you know, I'm here to, uh, visit so-and-so. Uh, and it's remarkable. Uh, do you, do you remember that, that film catch me if you can, Yes. <laughs> uh, you know, about the, the con guy, the con yeah. you know, yeah. Yeah. Fake it till you make it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think there's a lot to that. You know, there's just, there's just a sense that you just walk into a situation. You have to be good on your feet, kind of recognize the situation that you find yourself in, uh, know how to interact with people, uh, know how to think quick, uh, talk quick, <laughs> all that kind of stuff helps. Um, but this also reminds me of this. I was, I was in Louisville, Kentucky here recently. I was speaking at an event and when you're in Louisville, you know, everybody has to go to like one of the distilleries and get a tour, you know, learn about bourbon, the history of bourbon. But the, his, the, the, the origins of bourbon are fascinating. I know this is contested, but um, Elijah Craig was a, was a Baptist preacher mm-hmm. who was, uh, has been credited by many, many as being the father of bourbon. And, and I wondered why, why don't the Baptists brag about this? And well, it's bourbon. That's why. <laughs> Simon, have you ever heard me brag about that? I have. I'm pretty, sure I'm pretty but, yeah. but you're the only one I know of. Yeah. Some Baptists brag about that, Chris. It, it's okay, actually well, one good. of my you favorite bourbons. Yeah, yeah. Good. It's a great bourbon. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a good one. That's a good one. But you guys really should take more, uh, you know, you should use him as sort of like your, I don't know, your patron saint. <laughs> you know, here's a guy who, uh, you know, was a, uh, you know, a patriot. He worked with, you know, Patrick Henry and James Madison and founded a town, for goodness sake, founded five businesses that were successful. Um, He was just a force of nature. They lock him up in prison and he would preach through the prison bars and people would come to hear him. So they had to build a wall to keep people away. It's just remarkable, the guy, Uh, you know, Getting back to your earlier point about the Black Robe Regiment, um, guys like that, um, you know, where did those guys go? Um, that's that's a great question. Where do we find them? Um, are they attending our seminaries? I, I don't think so. So so let's um, let's turn to that, Chris. I mean, I, like like let's <clears throat> well, let me just put it this way. Um, let's just say that you're you know tomorrow you become the president of a seminary or you launch your own. How are you going to market it? How are you going to, who are you going to try to reach and bring into the ministry? How, what are, what are the methods that you would use? How would you particularly want to inspire young men? And then, you know, what would, how would the training look? How would it look different than what's, you know, maybe on offer at a standard evangelical seminary? Wow. Great questions. Well, you know, I was actually up for, uh, to be a board member, uh, at Covenant Seminary and, uh, the national partnership rallied to, keep me out. <laughs> so I've thought about some of this stuff. Um, I think um, we really ought to target accomplished men. Um, 
not just, you know, baby face guys fresh out of college. Now there's nothing wrong with that. You know, I'm glad that those guys go to seminary. I'm not trying to say we shouldn't. Uh, but I think we need to be more proactive. I think we need to say, okay, here's a believer who is an accomplished uh, civic leader, business leader, whatever. Have you ever thought about maybe a second career? <laughs> Another, you know, maybe maybe you're called into the ministry. We need we need guys like you. Um, and then when we have a guy like you, you can be a mentor. That was certainly the case with my friend John. My John, my friend John. Uh, you know, he made the transition into pastoral ministry in his 40s after he was, a, you know, a successful uh, entrepreneur and, and business leader. Um, when it comes to training, um, I thought, you know, it would be, there are certain things that a traditional seminary education are just is just indispensable for, you know, learning languages, systematic theology, that kind of stuff. But there's just a, a lot of fluff in your typical D-min, I mean, not D-min, uh, M-div, and, well, D-min too. <laughs> but uh, what we really need to do is is um, revive kind of the apprenticeship model. One of the things that happens sometimes in seminaries when they try to do that is they get kind of goofy with controls and stuff like that. They want to they wanna be able to transform late everything into credit hours. Um, and so, you know, in order to do that, everything has to be uh, done in a way that you, you could have it uh, accounted for. But most of the time in, in the real world, you know, kind of the peripatetic approach, it's just stuff comes up uh, and you're kind of dealing with it and you're talking about it. Um, and that's where a lot of the best learning occurs is, is like on the spot. That's, you know, obviously the approach Jesus uh, employed and, and, you know, Socrates, <laughs> you know, um, you just kind of walk around and do stuff. And as you're doing stuff, you got, you know, a small group of people with you and you talk about it with them. So I, I think that'd be part of it. But, um, and then I would, I would put a, a strong stress on having some other spheres of competency or spheres of knowledge that you are, you know, I, I wrote this piece for American Reformer, uh, and I was having a little fun remembering my wife's great uncle Ralph Earl uh, and his his outlook, um, and he was a wonderful man, great guy, uh, but um, he he puzzled over my my employment. You know, I was. Uh, a deck builder. I was involved in construction work. And that was just something you didn't do uh, in, in his world. Um, you know, so I, I think that, but at the, you know, for me, my background in the trades has given me a lot of credibility with blue collar guys. And I've never had a difficult time attracting men to my church, my churches who are, you know, you know, classically masculine, and, you know, uh, in fact, I was just in a conversation with a guy here a couple of nights ago, we were out at a brew pub and he was saying, you know, I haven't been in church in a long time. And this is the only church that I could see myself being a part of. Um, and it was because of, you know, he's a, he's actually blue collar guy and, and, you know, he, he feels at home. Um, 
At the same time, you know, because of my background in higher education, I've, I've been involved in higher education for 30 plus years. I'm able to relate to that crowd too. So, you know, so having the ability to, to straddle multiple uh, divides uh, is something we should be encouraging uh, with young men who are pursuing a, a call in the ministry. So those are just some thoughts off the top of my head. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Hey, maybe we can shift gears a little bit, but I know this is something that you've you've thought a lot about and that you embody in the way that you pastor. But what how do you like how do you think about your vocation as a pastor? I mean, obviously you've got your sort of primary functions, which are um, you know uh, ministering the word to the congregation, uh, shepherding them. Uh, you know, they're sort of specifically put under your care. But I know that you are also very um, community minded. You're you're looking to the to the area that you're in. And, you know, um, maybe you do this in a, in a different way than Tim Keller did in some respects. But but you are you're looking out um, beyond the walls of, of your church and, and figuring out how to serve how to serve that broader community. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I see myself as um a minister in the old fashioned sense, I guess, you know, kind of the parish model. Um, I, I think about the larger community, you know, that doesn't mean I go to all the pastors gatherings. Uh, in fact, I find those really depressing. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> well, most of the, you know, it's kind of a lowest common denominator kind of thing. And this is why we're not going to use, uh, you know, male pronouns, uh, because there's the lesbian gal from the UCC church down the street who's here and that, you know, that kind of stuff. I'm like, yeah, geez, I don't need this. So um, I, I'd much rather interact with, you know, small business owners, local activists, local politicians. Um, those are the people I enjoy interacting with uh, most. And they're actually very, interested in, in doing that, at least in my experience. Um, and, you know, I'll say things like, you know, I got 200 voters, <laughs> you know, uh, that kind of thing. I remember one time I was at 12th Baptist church in Boston. You remember 12th Baptist, uh, Josh? I don't. It was, it was where Michael Haynes was pastor for years and he was a state Senator for goodness sake. And I remember going to his church and he was very conservative and the theologically, but he was a Democrat. And he had Ted Kennedy at his, you know, come and speak for to his church like every two or three years, and uh, and I was like, hey, how does this all fit together? And I remember I was in his church one Sunday morning. He was actually on the board of Gordon Conwell Seminary too. But I remember I was sitting in his church one Sunday morning. I was I was looking at the bulletin, and there on the bulletin he had, you know, along with you know the number of people who attended last week for church, to, you know, to church, and then you know what came in in the offering the week before. Uh, number of registered voters right in the bulletin. That was fascinating. Uh, so there was no, he was not at all shy about letting the larger community know that uh, he had a voting block. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, so I, I guess that's, I, I enjoy that. I enjoy getting out. Maybe uh, it has something to do with, you know, these these other things I've done. Um, so I have a, a, a measure of comfort interacting with people outside of traditional church, churchy environments. Uh, in fact, churchy environments sometimes 
depressed me, like I already noted, even even denominational gatherings and stuff like that. I, I remember you hosted, your church hosted a conference on the negative world last year. And I, yeah. I was able to come out for that. And it was it was amazing. I mean, you had uh, Aaron Wren and Joe Rigney and James Wood out there. They gave very like great erudite talks, like cutting edge stuff. These are really faithful brothers that are really smart thinking about emerging issues. And then you had Joe Kent. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You know, it was great. And like, yeah. you know, I'm sure he modulated. You know, he was he was campaigning. I'm sure you know he did a little bit of stuff, yeah. speech, but sure. but he modulated. He was in it. He was in, and he heard he heard what those guys had to say in some of the sessions, and rubbed shoulders right. with your people. I mean, it, it, what a I, I thought that's a wonderful that's like a wonderful thing to do. Um, you know, yeah, yeah. 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 If you've got sympathetic yeah, guys, you start. You can start working on them. Start exposing them to um, the gospel. I, I think Joe's a professing Christian. Start exposing them to, to really good thought. I mean, most most of our political leaders haven't heard the first thing about you know the kinds of um, philosophy and 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 Christian you know uh, political theology that they can get exposed to when you have an event like that. Oh yeah, I mean, I, I consider Joe a friend. We've had, we've been together maybe half a dozen times, um, and he's a very sharp guy. I mean, mm-hmm. really bright. Um, and a quick study. You're 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 right. And he is open to those sorts of conversations. Um, and I, you know, I I, I uh, allowed my name to be thrown into the ring for city council in Battleground. Uh, I didn't make it through the primary, but I remember. Uh, you know, I, I think one of the best things about that was just this, that now people in the community recognize my name um, when they when they uh, come across me, and um, so I, I'm a, I, I think that getting involved in these ways uh, is really important, and and you know sometimes these 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 leaders. Uh, are thinking about these things and wondering who they can talk about these things with. And if you're too afraid to associate with a guy like Joe Kent, I bet you 95% of the PCA wouldn't be caught dead talking to Joe Kent on camera. Um, Just because, you know, Joe is a Trumper and Joe is, you know, super forthright Mm -hmm. (laughs) all the time about what's ever on his mind. Um, it, he'd definitely be part of the, uh, you know, the group that's now stirring things up in, you know, the U.S. House of Representatives on the Republican side. If he was there, I, I know he's just you know, dying to be there. <laughs> but uh, but when the, when these guys can sense, hey, this this person actually likes me and wants to be with me, and he 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 thinks about some of these things that I'm thinking about, but I don't have anybody to talk to. These things come up in conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, I mean, it's very interesting, just kind of the, um, I mean, this vision of, you know, you're, you're not, you're, it's not like you're over theorizing it or something, but just this sort of model of pastor in the community and asserting themselves in that way and just sort of being gregarious. I guess we could, we could put it that, that way, um, whereas rather than being isolated in their own little enclaves of you know these um, pastor meetings or or church gatherings, um, but assuming themselves to be a member of the community and worth um, 
having a relationship with and interested in having a relationship with other people who are also leaders. And it, it almost is like it, uh, to use the popular word, it's almost like you, you manifest, you know, by, by doing it, um, by just getting out there and that it's actually not rocket science is what you're, what you're kind of suggesting. Yeah, I mean, if you if you are a competent person and you have a range of interests besides, you know, how to grow your church, um, the paradox is that uh, you know you will grow your church, <laughs> but um, you'll be looked to for input uh, in some surprising settings, so, you know, places where you might not expect that anybody to care about what you have to say. And, and, and you shouldn't be chameleon-like. You should just be, hey, this is who I and what I am, you know. Uh, and if you are good with that, then I, then we can hang out. Uh, if you're not, then don't invite me next time or yeah. <laughs> whatever. So we might we might say the problem with um, seminary recruitment, or or at least the people going to seminaries, we're not we're not screening for interesting and competent people. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Uh, we're we're tending to get uh, people who need to be liked, um, who, um, <laughs> let me tell you a quick story. Uh, I remember I was at a, a gathering, it was a Presbyterian meeting of the Presbyterian. We were and you know, bringing people under care, young men under care. And this, this guy gets up and he looked, uh, like your stereotypical homeschooler. And he, the first thing he said is, I've always wanted to be a pastor. I grew up wanting to be a pastor. And I'm thinking to myself, you're kidding me. <laughs> <laughs> that was the last thing I wanted to be. <laughs> and and I was being introduced to the presbytery. And like two or three people later, I got up and said, I said the very thing. <laughs> you, you, really? <laughs> you know, don't you realize that all the great leaders didn't want the job? I mean, <laughs> you know, anyway, uh, it made me wonder if he really understood what he was getting into for one thing, but it also uh, it gives me a sense that um, maybe he's just not a, a very interesting person. Yeah. Maybe he's just a person who just likes to spend all of his time with time, time with books. And particularly in the reform world, we get a particular kind of person, a very bookish kind of person who really thinks like an engineer. Mm -hmm. And um, I, yeah, no, I, no, I, um, this is exactly, uh, the, the type of person you described when I was at seminary. I mean, it's always a mixed, mixed bag and you, you certainly do find interesting people there and, you know, lo and behold, they go on to do other very interesting things, but there was a huge, uh, portion of the population there. And this is at, at Westminster that, um, you know, I'm not dumping on any of these things individually, but just the package of the person who was, homeschooled, you know, grew up in a niche kind of reformed denomination. Um, and then they go to Bible college or a Christian school, and then they go to seminary and then they're put in an, you know, an OPC church or something. I mean, so just a very narrow experience of, of life. And you can even, um, you know, the, the problem we might say is not necessarily being bookish, but you know, you got to read some things besides like Bob Inc or something for part of your life, right? Yeah, sure. Like to be able to talk with <laughs> right, other right, people, right. because if you, if the pastor is supposed to be a sort of um, community figure and, and as, as Josh was bring, rightly bringing up with the, uh, you know, early influential pastors and 
in America, you know, they, of course they're intellectuals, they're bookish and these things, but you know, they had, they had broader learning and part of that learning, even yeah. in college, you know, that they would have been some of the few people to go to college. So probably an issue is too many people getting educated today, but, um, that's a different, different topic, but they would have gone, their classmates would have either been fellow ministers or people that were going to be big time merchants or leaders in government, right? So you build a, your, your cohort of the, of the leaders is built there, but you're, you're going different ways, but you maintain those, those connections and those relations and commonalities. And you have a broader, you know, spectrum it, rather than seminaries are such little enclaves now. Um, and then you can, you can get out in okay. them. Not only are you not a good community leader, but a lot of these guys, I mean, you just meet them and you're like, I don't, I don't understand how you're even going to handle pastoral counseling. Like you're just so uh, under socialized, right. <laughs> you know? So anyway, uh, yeah, we go on and on. I mean, not, not dumping right. on, on all these guys. Some of them surprise you, but uh, you know, the having someone who is both intellectual and, and bookish and on the one hand, but has a, a broader experience and even, even just broader interest is probably a thing that seminaries are not doing a good job curating at this point. I think that's, that's what we're saying. Yeah. And, and I think a paradox, no, no, it's an irony, uh, is that the bookishness actually, um, makes you less sort of appealing among the bookish. Mm. So, <laughs> so one of the things, um, I think you see is like the person you just described, Timon, uh, you know, probably their, their aspiration is to write something for the gospel mm -hmm. coalition. You know, that'd mm -hmm. be like, you're on, you know, the, the mountaintop. Now you're at the very top because there's no higher you can go. Uh, but I, I've often thought, you know, I don't want to be, you know, uh, the 300th reformed guy, you know, fighting for editorial space, uh, you know, in a publication like that, I'd rather be the token. Mm -hmm. I'd rather be the only reform guy. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that's been kind of my, you know, my secret sauce, mm -hmm. I guess, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, so I've been, I've been published and supported by traditionalist Catholics. Some of they've, some of those folks have been my biggest supporters. So I'm here at, I'm here at Touchstone speaking at the, at the banquet tonight mm -hmm. uh, for the major donors and the announcement is going to be made, unless they change their mind at the last minute, <laughs> that I'm a new senior editor for, <laughs> for Touchstone. Now, how did I get that? Was it by climbing the, the uh, ladder of reformed publications? Mm -hmm. <laughs> no. I, I, I think that probably the Gospel Coalition would reject anything I sent mm -hmm. them. Just because of some of the other. Well, unless you I'm have something in the with. Hopper on Taylor Swift, I don't think they'd publish it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that gets me back to my point earlier about you know God's gym. <laughs> 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 so, um, but it's because I was uh, interested in a range of things and wrote about a range of things that that these folks. So like my book, Man of the House, was actually originally uh, acquired by uh, Crossroads Publishing, which is, you know, the, the Roman Catholic press, uh, the American division of, of Herder and, and Herder of Germany, for goodness <laughs> sake. And, you know, they published the Pope and the Dalai Lama. <laughs> it was John Zmirak that recruited me to do it. And then Zmirak blew up uh, like he always blows up. And then uh, he was like made a, uh, 
you know, he was sort of like leprous and anybody who was associated with him uh, was considered unclean. And so they, they drummed me out and that's a whole other story, but that, but, uh, but that was where it got started. And so some of my, like I said, the guy who nominated me to become the new, uh, a new senior editor at Touchstone was Tony Esselin. Mm, Yeah. Uh, You know, it wasn't, Peter Lightheart. Yeah, right. <laughs> he, he's here, and, and Peter and I know each other. We're friends, but uh, it was Tony that has been has been my biggest uh, cheerleader uh, here at Touchstone. Interesting. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's wonderful. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, you know, we and part of the. I mean, I think that we have a lot of younger men in our audience. Um, you know, guys who do aspire to write you know, aspire to some kind of ministry in some way. And I, I think, I think part of our, part of our message to them, and, and I think you inspire this path is sort of, um, you know, uh, chart, chart your own path a little bit. Um, don't, uh, you don't need to necessarily go through kind of the existing um, status hierarchies or paths to success in big Eva uh, to, 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 to build as a, to grow as a person and to grow, to grow your ministry and your, your public voice. Um, I mean, that's, that's sort of what we're all about, right? I mean, a lot of us, I don't have an MDiv time and you do, but you were, you know, you didn't, you know, you've been a practicing lawyer. I made it. Yes. Um, I made it very clear. I was disinterested in vocational ministry from the the moment I got there. That's that's why you're probably qualified. <laughs> well, but this is this is interesting what Josh is saying because if you do and 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 Chris the you know the pipe there's pipelines set up um, by the pre- predominant you know ministry model um, promoters and, and these sorts of things. I mean they, a lot of these people have already been mentioned to to provide legitimacy in a, in a sort of career path. Um, whereas if you stripped that away because it's safe, so, you know, getting to TGC, you've arrived, then you, then you go on and do something for, uh, you know, crossway, whatever. And you, you know, you get this, um, now we've seen recently, they are, they are not hesitant to strip that away. If you, uh, you know, you step out of the, your lane oh, yeah. a little too much and say some, uh, provocative things, but, uh, and we've done podcasts on that the point is if you, if you, you know, take a more, um, entrepreneurial route, which I think it's very interesting that you you first mentioned one of your great mentors is in fact that right, which which I think is what um, is distinguishing your outlook from from others. But if you take if you try to chart your own your own course, you have to be able to do things of quality and that are actually impressive um, to gain sure, recognition. Right. And and that may be you know part of the answer we're coming back to is well, the, the people that are placed into the pipeline maybe aren't that impressive. And that's why that option's not really open to them or they're afraid of it. But, and I would say that, but I would say time and like they, they could be, some of them are capable of being impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And part of that is they, they need to be held to higher standards and hold themselves indeed. to higher standards. Yes, indeed. Um, you know, these, there's these, there's these big Eva institutions that award gold stars essentially. And a lot of that's for, for loyalty, for amicability. Um, and, and, you know, I think we do need sort of a healthy, um, spirit of, 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 uh, (laughs) self-determination and confidence. I don't want my work to, uh, stand. I don't want to rise to prominence merely because, you know, my betters at, you know, fill in the slot, big Eva institution decided to elevate me. I want, I'm I want my work to stand on its own merits. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think there are these moments. There, there are defining moments where 
you find yourself in a spot where you, you say, and if I don't hit this out of the park, uh, I'm done, <laughs> you know, uh, and I've had a few of those and by God's grace, I was able to recognize this is a defining moment. I better rise to the occasion mm -hmm. and give my best. And if my best isn't good enough, well, there you go. It just isn't good enough. But, you know, so there are, it's not as though every single time you get up in front of a crowd, you, you have one of those moments. But uh, that's I you got to have an eye for when those and then when it when it when they happen, you need to be audacious. You need to be bold. Mm -hmm. You need to take advantage of the opportunity and call your shot and then hit out of the park. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. you know, I, I noted earlier that I was invited to to uh, attend uh HDS, uh, Harvard's, uh, you know, Harvard Divinity School by Harvey Cox. Now, Harvey, if people probably don't remember him, but he was huge. I mean, he was a friend of Richard John Newhouse, but he were on opposite sides of things on many matters. But he was, you know, he wrote Secular City in the 60s that sold 2 million copies during the Death of God phenomenon. Wow. And how this happened was, is uh, I had a friend who was now, there's another interesting thing. This guy was the chairman of the Republican City Committee in Cambridge. His name is David Trumbull. He's actually a, a lobbyist now and works for the textile industry. But um, he he got a call. He was the he was uh, got a call from Harvey and and Harvey said, I need some evangelicals to come into a class because I'm teaching a class in evangelical. It's, it's kind of like, you know, ethnography or something. You know, you're like a like some so, like a you know, your subject of study for cultural anthropologists. <laughs> so, so they, they, they said, and then David said, well, I only know, know a couple. And so then David called me up and said, Hey, you know, you want to come with me to this class? So I, I come into this class and there were like, you know, 30, you know, rainbow, uh, children <laughs> there, uh, with the little pink triangles and all that stuff. This is back in the mid nineties and the three of us and for like an hour and a half, it was total war. Uh, you know, it was less like, you know, no uh, holds barred. And Cox was overseeing it. Um, and, you know, we didn't back down one one little bit. And in fact, I even challenged him at a point. And uh, so we weren't trying to be winsome. We were trying to win. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> That's, there's a big difference. And at the end, Cox came to me and said, I want you to come to Harvard Divinity School. Mm -hmm. Now, he was on a crusade at that point to bring in evangelicals. He tried to get Mark Knoll on the faculty and was voted down. He told me all about it. It was really an enlightening thing for even him at that moment to just see how fraudulent the, you know, the diversity mantra was. But uh, he, you know, so I was one of the guys he brought in. Uh, now, maybe it was a Trojan horse move. Maybe he wanted to kind of make me one of their guys. I don't know. I, I think he was more he had more integrity than that but um it was it was that moment i knew that that moment i just got to give it everything and uh take you know every shot fire my guns <laughs> you know and uh it worked out great yeah yeah that's wonderful um well we're, we're coming up on the hour i think we can probably call this one a wrap this has been a good wide-ranging conversation chris um Thank you. Any any parting thoughts, uh, words of wisdom for our audience before we call this uh, to a close? Sure. Read American Reformer. It's a great publication. <laughs> Your check's in the mail. <laughs> yes.
Read Touchstone too. Touchstone's a great magazine. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, been doing yeah. solid work for years. Uh, congratulations on that. Uh, hopefully, forthcoming yeah. appointment. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. That's like I said. You know, it, 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 maybe at the last minute they'll decide. Well, this this will go out <laughs> like next week. So do let us know if we need to. You know, can it if they rescind the yeah. offer? <laughs> yeah, I'm being facetious. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, you never you never know. You might want to keep your bases mm-hmm. covered. <laughs> Yeah. Right. Chris, thank you for your time. Uh, time and thank you as well. Th- thank you, audience. Um, we always appreciate your attention. We would really appreciate if you would leave us a five-star review uh, and maybe even uh, you know write a little something. Um, that helps us expand our reach and get, get into more ears uh, over the internet. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, Podbean, any other purveyor of fine podcasts. You can find American Reformer at AmericanReformer.org. We're on Twitter at AmReformer. We're actually now also running weekly Twitter spaces, uh, which are sort of like podcasts, but they give you uh, the opportunity to hop on and ask a question and argue with us and the people that we're talking to. And it's a lot of fun. Um, Anyways, thank you so much. And until next time, God bless. You can find American Reformer on the internet at www.americanreformer.org or on x.com, formerly Twitter, at amreformer. Don't forget to like, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. Please consider supporting us today by making a tax-deductible donation through our secure online donation portal at americanreformer.org. That's americanreformer.org.